So we're looking at John chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 to 30 today. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So a few years ago, we had a missions team come up from Mississippi, and they helped us with some outreach. And uh, we went out during the day, and one of the things that we did was we made cookies, and we just brought them to people. I think we might have given them a flyer about Church in the Park and said, hey, we just wanted to bless you with some cookies. And what was interesting was seeing people's response to this. Because they had these expectations in their mind, and the question they kept asking was, what does it cost, or what kind of catch is there? And they thought there had to be some kind of trick or some kind of uh, thing that we were doing to, to, that we'd be giving out these cookies. I remember one lady that we went to their, their house, um, and the lady comes to the door, answers the door. She's like, what do you want? That was you. That was in that. <laughs> And we're like, oh, we have some cookies for you. She's like, oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And her whole demeanor changed because she thought that we were selling something for whatever reason. I remember walking down the street with this, this plate of, platter of cookies. And people came up to us and said, hey, uh, how much are you selling them for? And we'd like to, to buy some. 
And they had trouble wrapping their minds around the fact that we're just giving out cookies because they were thinking there's some kind of catch or there's some kind of cause. Sometimes when we ask the wrong questions, we get the wrong answers. There's a movie, 1963 movie called The Pink Panther. And in the, that movie, there, the inspector, Inspector Clouseau, I think that's his name. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know French at all. So I apologize if I mispronounce it. But he goes into this hotel, and there's this little dog there. And uh, he asks the hotel clerk, does your dog bite? He says, no, 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 my dog don't bite. And so Inspector Clouseau bows down, and he says, oh, good doggy, good doggy. He goes to pet the dog, and the, the dog barks at him and bites him. And so he looks at the clerk and says, I thought you said that your dog doesn't bite. And the clerk said, well, that's not my dog. He asked the wrong question, so he got the wrong answer. And I think that we sometimes can do that spiritually speaking. We ask the wrong questions, we get the wrong answer. I think probably the most common question that sometimes people ask is, whether believers or unbelievers, is the question, what does God need me to do? What does God need me to do? What does God need me to sacrifice? What does God need me to tithe? Where does God need me to go? And we ask these questions, and I think they're really not great questions because the answer to all those questions is the same. Where does, what does God need me to do? Nothing. Where does God need me to go? Nowhere. What is God calling me to tithe? Nothing. What, is, what does God need me to tithe? And so we ask these questions, and you say, well, does God call me to do things? Of course God calls us to do things, but he doesn't need us to do anything. He doesn't need us. He is all sufficient by himself. Now, when we think about helping somebody out or someone who is in need, usually, not always, but usually you help out someone who's maybe in a lesser place or not doesn't have as many resources as we do. You know, if you have a job, if you have a roof over your head, you might donate to the city mission. But if you're homeless and you don't have any income, you probably wouldn't donate to the city mission. And so we have God, the all-sufficient, all-powerful one, and in actuality, he doesn't need anything from us. And again, you say, well, there's a lot of people in the scripture that God needed, that God called to do things. Well, he didn't need them. He didn't need them. He could have used other people. He could have done it himself, but he chose to use them. And the reason he chose to use them was to reveal himself to them, to show them his faithfulness, to show them his greatness. And so we think about like Abraham. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Was it because God needed a sacrifice? No, it's because God wanted to show to Abraham that he was faithful, that he was the provider. You think about Moses, and did God really need Moses? Was there any other way? He could have provided another way. He could have led the Israelites out of Egypt, but he wanted to show his faithfulness. He wanted to show that he was the deliverer. And he wanted to show Moses and the people of Israel his power. Henry Blackaby in the book, Experiencing God, which uh, some of us are studying now, says it aptly this way. He says, you come to know God by experience at his initiative as he allows you to learn something new about him. As you experience God, you grow to know him more intimately and personally. 
As you grow in your knowledge of him, you will naturally want to express your praise, gratitude, and worship to him. The passage that we're looking at today, Jesus asks, asks this woman to, uh, at the well to do something for him, to give him a drink. And she responds by saying, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then Jesus responds and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, the woman is so focused on Jesus' physical need. And what she can do for Jesus that she forgets and doesn't realize what she needs from Jesus. She doesn't realize the one who is standing before her. She's focused on what Jesus needs rather than what she needs from Jesus. And as we look in this passage, we discover that Jesus is all that this woman needs. And in turn, he's all that we need. He's all that our souls long for. We learn that Jesus is enough for us. And I think there are three things that Jesus is for this woman in this passage and in turn that Jesus is for us. The first thing that Jesus is for this woman is Jesus is uh, her purity and our purity. Notice that Jesus tells this woman to call for her husband. And Jesus says that she's had five husbands and the one that she's with is not her husband. Now... One way of translating this word in the ESV and, and some other translations, it's translated as husband. It also could be translated as men. Now, the ancient rabbis taught that uh, generally you couldn't marry more than, you couldn't enter into more than three marriages. And uh, that was the Jewish rabbis. This is the Samaritan, so it's a little bit different. So it, but uh, they probably had kind of similar thinking that you couldn't marry at least uh, more than three times. And that was even if it was kind of a legitimate reason if your spouse passed away or, or something like that. So what may be happening here, we don't know for sure, but Jesus may be kind of doing a play on words. And he may be saying here, you've had five men, and the one that you're with is not your man or your husband. So the five men might not have even been her husband. And the your, what he says about your man or your husband, is in the emphatic position indicating that perhaps, we don't know again for sure, but perhaps the person that she's with now is not her husband, but somebody else's husband. So you put all these pieces together, and uh, it's clear that this woman is very morally loose, spiritually bankrupt. One scholar that I read suggest that she, suggested that she was a serial fornicator. We might even go so far as to say she was a prostitute. We don't know for sure. But not only that, she's a Samaritan, and that's another knock against her. Samaritans were kind of half-Jews. They were Jews that kind of... Uh, kind of took some of the different ideas and kind of added them to Judaism. Kind of the best idea I can think of is, you know, when you think about a cult, it's almost like the Samaritans were a cult of Judaism. You know, you think about a cult and maybe, say, a Christian cult. Uh, you know, you have a, a group like the Jehovah Witnesses or the uh, Christian Scientists, and they would say they believe the Bible but they take it and they use it and, and teach things that are kind of foreign to the Bible that we, you know, maybe seem extremely strange to us. And the Samaritans were essentially that, a cult of Judaism. They had some Jewish ideas. They believed in the Old Testament law, but they added to those things, and they had different beliefs. Uh, for example, one of the biggest beliefs that Jesus and this woman discuss is the fact that 
the Jews believed that you should worship at Jerusalem, and the Samaritans believed you should worship at Mount Gerizim. And so she had that against her. She was kind of this Jewish half-breed, member of this so-called almost cult. And it was often ta taught that if a Samaritan touched someone, or if you associated with Samaritans too closely, it would make a Jew unclean. Also, we see in the scriptures that there's this kind of belief that you shouldn't associate with evildoers, people who are sinners. Remember in the Gospels how in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see described the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees, they all said, the same, they all asked the same question, why does Jesus hang out with sinners and, Pharisees and tax collectors? I mean, if he's the son of God, if he's holy, if he's righteous, if he is who he says he is, then why would he hang out with sinners? He's defiling himself by doing that. And so you have this woman who's a sinner. She's morally loose, spiritually bankrupt, and she's also a Samaritan. And yet Jesus does something remarkable. He asks her for a drink. He asks her for a drink. He, it says in the text he doesn't have his own water pail. He only has the water pail from her. And he asked her for a drink, and if he was going to drink from her water cup, it would have made him ceremonially unclean. And yet that's what he asked for. See, any other Jew, it would make him unclean. And yet whatever Jesus touches becomes clean. And so Jesus shines in the midst of darkness. What he touches, makes, he makes clean. So we serve a, a Savior who meets us at our point of need. He meets us at our point of weakness. He meets us even in our sin, and He calls us to a new life. When we come to Him in faith, He renews us. He purifies us by His blood. Jesus is this woman's purity. Jesus is our purity. He comes to us even when we don't deserve it. He associates those with those who are lowly, those who are sinners. The second thing we see is that Jesus is our acceptance. I mean, the story is interesting on so many levels. But you think about this and think about uh, an ancient Near Eastern culture where water was scarce. And imagine that it's hot out and you need to go to a well. Now, if it's really hot out and you have to go to a well and carry this heavy water pitcher, when would you go? Would you wait until the middle of the day when the sun was shining and it was super hot, or would you go in the morning or at nighttime? You'd probably go early in the morning or later at night. Second question. If you lived in a culture where there were no policemen, where there was uh, no general sense of safety, where you were uh, potentially vulnerable being a woman in that culture, would you go to a well by yourself or with other people? You'd probably go with other people. But we see in this passage two things. We see that she goes in the heat of the day. It says that she went at the sixth hour, which was noon, and she goes alone. What does this indicate? It most likely indicates that nobody else wanted to go with her. It most likely indicates that she was kind of the one who was ostracized from the community. The one who had a reputation. The one who wore a scarlet letter as... Hester Prine did in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book. She was an outcast from the society. She went by herself when nobody else would be around, when nobody sensible would be at the well, probably because she didn't want to face their criticism anymore. 
What's interesting is that when Jesus shows up from a Jewish cultural perspective, there was no reason that he should be there with her. You look at wells in the scripture, and wells were often a place where people met their spouse. It was kind of the e-harmony of the ancient world. If you wanted to meet somebody, you go to a well. So she, he go, Jesus goes to a well, and not only is he with a woman, a Samaritan woman, but a woman who's very morally loose. So how does it look when people see him there? It looks nothing short of scandalous. The disciples even suggest this in, in verse 27. It says, just then his disciples came back. It says they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Jewish men usually didn't talk to women in public. Further, there was this, many rabbis taught that it wasn't fruitful to talk to a woman about matters of theology. Andreas Kostenberger says this, Some rabbis held that to talk to a woman, even one's own wife, was a waste of time, diverting one's attention from the study of the Torah. Potentially this habit could grow to be a great evil, leading to hell. I mean, that's a crazy viewpoint. But that's the way that some people thought during that time frame. And so there's this potential scandal here that Jesus is coming to a well, talking to a woman of ill repute, and he's talking to her about matters of theology. That's something that would have been crazy in the ancient mind. But what does Jesus do here? I, th I think he does something remarkable. Not only does he talk to theology, but he talks very clearly and very plainly to her. Now, in the Gospels, we see a number of places where Jesus is talking to people and he's a little bit obtuse about who he is and what he's trying to accomplish. At the early stages of his ministry, he didn't want to fully reveal who he was to everyone because he knew that if he did that, then they were going to put him to death and he needed to fulfill his ministry. So there are times where he kind of talks in riddles, so to speak, talks in parables, so that his disciples and those who are in this, on the inside would understand, but the people on the outside wouldn't understand. And so we see that a number of times in Scripture. But what does Jesus do here? With a Samaritan woman of ill repute, he speaks completely clearly. He says unequivocally, one of the clearest explanations of who he is, he says plainly, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you are talking about. I mean, what incredible grace that is that he chooses to reveal himself so clearly to a woman that the world would have rejected, that the Jewish mind would say, you shouldn't even be talking to her. And yet Jesus revealed the fact that he was the Messiah. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in? Have you ever felt like you don't measure up? Praise the Lord that he accepts us into his family. Praise the Lord that by faith we can be a part of his family, that we can be accepted by him. Jesus is our uh, acceptance. The final thing we see in this passage is Jesus is our satisfaction. The fact that this woman has had five men or five husbands, whichever it is, is on, and is on to the sixth indicates that she's spiritually thirsty. That she's looking for something she has not found. Now, there's a number of possibilities. It could have been that she was with one husband or with one man and, and grew tired of him and went to another, went to another, went to another. That's possible. 
But it's also possible, and I think probably a little bit more likely given the kind of the climate of the ancient world, that her husbands either passed away or they found something they didn't like about her. Because usually, not always, but usually it was the man who filed for divorce. And so he probably found something that he didn't like in her. One husband or one man. Another man, another man. He went, she went from person to person, relationship to relationship, and yet here she is on her sixth. And she's more and more empty. She's more and more broken. Isn't life like that sometimes? We look to certain things to satisfy us, to fulfill us, and yet sometimes we remain empty. Maybe we look to a relationship to do that. And, and we feel this kind of hole in our hearts and we feel this, uh, this and, and we get into this relationship and we want our spouse to fill that hole in our heart, hearts and our spouse can't fill that hole and yet we remain empty. And what oftentimes people do is it's like, well, I must have chose the wrong spouse. There's still that hole. I need to go find someone else. Or we do that with our career. We find the career that we always wanted, and we still are left longing. Like, well, I must have made the wrong decision. I must have made the wrong choice. I need to find another job. We think to ourselves, if only our circumstances would change. If only our job would change. If only our spouse would act this way or that way. If only our kids wouldn't do this or that. If only we had a little bit more wiggle room in our bank account. If only these things would change, then I would be fulfilled. Then I wouldn't be empty anymore. But then sometimes those things do change. They do get better, and yet still we're empty. Jim Carrey, the actor, said in a speech a few years ago something that I find pretty remarkable. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. A change of circumstance is not the answer. Blaise Pascal, in off-quoted words, said this, There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And so this woman is so spiritually thirsty, and Jesus offers something that will change all that. He offers her the living water. Now, when we're talking about living water, living water is in contrast to kind of stagnant or dead water. Think of the image of uh, dead water as being kind of like a pond. You think of a pond that has no water flow, that's just dirty and mucky and just, just filthy. And then you have living water from a stream that's clean, and pure. That's kind of the image. And Jesus offers her that living water. Now, water is something that was very important in, in agrarian societies. You know, I think about the, I watched this National, uh, National Geographic or something on Netflix about, you know, a nature program. And, you, you know, you think about these lands in, in Africa and in some places in Asia where, like, the water is what directs everything. If there's no water, it's just a place of death and destruction. But if there's water there, you see all the animals coming and the trees flourishing and everything growing. And that's kind of the image of water in the scripture. Water was necessary for life. It was uh, their lifeblood. It also represented sustenance and satisfaction. Water represented cleansing in the Old Testament. 
It was used in a number of cleansing rituals and specifically for very serious cases of uncleanness. For example, if someone had leprosy, the prescription was that they should uh, get living water to cleanse them. And Jesus says, I can give living water. You'll never be thirsty again. That hole in your heart will be satisfied. And Jesus offers us that same water. Later, he identifies that living water as the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Jesus is our satisfaction. Jesus is our purity. Jesus is our acceptance. Jesus is our satisfaction. But the most important question is why? Why is Jesus our purity? Why is he our acceptance? Why is he our satisfaction? And I think the answer is that because it is because he took the place of the woman at the well. When we meet Jesus in this passage... What's the first thing that we notice about him? We notice that he's thirsty and he's tired. God has become a man. Jesus has taken the thirst of this woman. Jesus has taken the sin of this woman. He became sin for this woman. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took sin upon himself so that sinners might be made pure. He was rejected by his own people. Kind of like this woman was rejected by her own people. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. We see in the scripture that he was thirsty, thirsty physically in this passage, but also on the cross. John 19 verse 28 says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fill the scripture, I thirst. And not only was he physically thirsty, but he was spiritually thirsty. In Mark chapter 15 verse 34 it says, in the, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled. Jesus took the place of this woman at the well. He became sin for us. He was rejected for us. He thirsted so that we could be filled. What a privilege that is for those of us who are believers in Christ. And so here we are 2,000 years later in the midst of a global pandemic. How does this impact our lives? Well, the question I'd like for you to consider today is what do you need Jesus to be to you today? What do you need Jesus to be to you today? And when I'm saying that, I'm not saying what do you need Jesus to give you? See, circumstances aren't, aren't going to fill that hole in our hearts. Getting more money in our bank account, having good health, having good relationships, those are good things. They're blessings of God. They're not going to fix the hole in our hearts. What do you need Jesus to be to you today? Some of us maybe were anxious, fearful, worried. We don't know what the future holds. Maybe today we need Jesus to be our peace. Some of us, maybe we feel guilty about the things that we've done, ashamed of our past. Maybe today we need Jesus to be our purity. 
Maybe some of us feel like we don't fit in. Maybe we feel left out. Maybe we are physically isolated from others. Maybe we feel spiritually unconnected from others. Maybe today we need Jesus to be our acceptance. Some of us maybe, we don't know if we can get up tomorrow. We just don't have the strength to fight another day. And maybe today Jesus needs to be our hope. Some of us, maybe we're spiritually thirsty and we're kind of going from one thing to the next, trying to get things of this world to satisfy us. And maybe today Jesus needs to be our satisfaction. If there's anyone here who's never entered into a relationship with Jesus, Jesus can fill that hole in our hearts, that longing that we can have. Nothing in this world can fill that longing. It's a hole that only God can fill. And when we come to him in faith, he gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to fill us up, to give us a renewed hope, renewed purpose, renewed joy. It's not something we see physically, but it's something we feel in our hearts. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, let's drink deeply of the water that is ours. There's an old story uh, from the film uh, John de Florette about uh, village people from Provence, France. And there was this uh, landowner named Jean, and he had inherited this farm uh, when some loved one passed away. And so the townspeople kind of ganged up on him because they were trying to make his farm fail so they could take his land. So there was a stream that was on his property, and they went and plugged it up, covered up the well, covered up the spring so that he wouldn't know about it. And so he's trying to, you know, have this farm and, and take care of the animals or whatever he had on that farm. And he knew about some water, but he knew the only spring he knew about was about a mile away. So each day he would have to take, you know, buckets and, and whatever he took to get that water and go a mile away to bring that water back. And the whole time he never realized that there was water right beneath the surface on his own land. As believers, we have living water that's living inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Jesus is everything that we need. And so let's not run to other wells trying to get those things to satisfy us. Let's drink deeply of the only one who truly can satisfy us. Jesus emptied himself so that we might be filled. Are you filled today? Are you filled with God's love? What do you need for Jesus to be to you today? What do you need from him? What do you need him to be to you today? The thing that we need most in our lives today is God. And the good news is he's enough for us. No matter what it is you need, no matter what longing you have in your soul, he is enough for each and every one of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you emptied yourself, that you became weak, that you were hungry, you were thirsty, you were tired, so that we could be filled in you, Lord. We thank you that you don't reject us just because of our sin, that you invite us to come up to be a part of your family. We thank you for your great love for us, your great grace, that you reach out to us even in the midst of our sin. Lord, I pray that we would run to you today. We drink deeply from the well that is your Holy Spirit. 
because we know that when we run to you, no matter what it is we need, no matter what the hurts or the longing in our hearts is, you're enough for us. Help us to believe that. Help us to run to you today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.